If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to Hebrews chapter 8 this morning as we continue in our study through the letter to the Hebrews. If you do not have a Bible, hopefully there should be one in the chair underneath you, uh, underneath the chair in front of you or to the side of you. We refer to that as our pew Bible, and you can find this passage on page 1005 of the, the ESV pew Bible, Hebrews chapter 8. This morning, we're going to be looking specifically at the first five verses, but I want to read the whole chapter. It's 13 verses, not too long, and we, Lord willing, will be able to spend several Lord's Days looking at this very important passage. Um, Just by way of introduction, to help us understand the importance of Hebrews 8, the way that the author begins, now the point in what we are saying is this. So, What we have read thus far in this letter is finding its focal point to help the the recipients of this letter, to help us understand what is going to be uh, talked about in Hebrews 8 is the, the, the focus of the letter. It is to understand why this letter was written, the, the focal point, the focus, the attention. And so I pray that the Lord would give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, this morning just the importance of Hebrews 8. So please follow along as I read from God's word. Now the point and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it enacted on, it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. And write, and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. 
In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Hear the word of the Lord. I want to draw your attention to verse 6 because I think it, by the inspiration of Holy Spirit, gives us a summary of this full chapter, basically saying this, that Jesus has a better ministry, a better covenant, and better promises. And so this morning we're looking again at his ministry as our great high priest, and Lord willing we'll have an opportunity to really dig into a better covenant and better promises in the weeks to come. Now, I want to remind us, if you were with us last Lord's Day, um, I began by reading a little passage from Sinclair Ferguson, and this week I just want to remind you of one point in that passage, one phrase that he mentioned, the invisible is more substantial than the visible. It was true for the Hebrew Christians that received this letter so many years ago, and it is true for us today. The invisible is more substantial than the visible. Now, why do I say that? It is, um, according to everything that I have read, all indications, and as you read through this letter, clear that this was written before A.D. 70. Something very important and huge happened in A.D. 70, and it was the destruction of the temple. And so the recipients of this letter, this was received pre-AD 70, meaning what these Hebrew Christians saw visibly was still this beautiful, glorious temple in Jerusalem with the Levitical priesthood still offering sacrifices. All of that was still happening in their life as they were called by God to believe in Christ, the fulfillment of all that, and to be part of now the way, Christianity, that was different and separated from the old ways of the old covenant. But just think for a moment, as they made their profession of faith in Christ, what they were losing and even being persecuted by would have been the, 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 the Jewish people who were still participating and what they had always been participating in and saying, what you're now a part of is, is a cult. This is, this is false teaching. We have the truth. And so there was this temptation as what they see visually may not be as glorious as what they once experienced, but the letter of Hebrews is trying to help them understand it's so much better having Christ, the fulfillment of all that those things pointed to, these, these shadows, we have the substance but the temptation was to go back. There's a, a picture kind of painted in, in Matthew's gospel in the 24th chapter of the disciples with the Lord Jesus from the Mount of Olives overlooking one of the most glorious sights, and that was the Temple Mount, the temple. They, they saw it, they pointed to it, they asked Jesus about what he was talking about when he actually was prophesying that the, the temple would be um, destroyed. They were seeing and viewing and even admiring how beautiful the old was. And that temptation was ever-present for these Hebrew Christians 
who are experiencing hardship, experiencing persecution, even a lot of times from their own people, and a desire to say, to first ask the question, is this worth it? Is this really better? Because what we see doesn't necessarily translate that reality. And yet, this chapter, what we've seen in Hebrews is to expound upon the invisible being more substantial than the visible. Jesus Christ is being held up in front of them as obtaining a more excellent ministry because he mediates a better covenant. And so the way the author begins chapter 8, he's, he's helping them and us understand once again the main point. Now, the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. Present tense, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. There is a directness here that it was both helpful for them and helpful for us. This is not just speculation of what we might obtain, not just a theory being put forward, but speaking of fact, even if you can't see it with your eyes, brothers and sisters, this is the reality that is so much better. We have such a high priest. He is real. And for those in Christ, he is our high priest. The emphasis in Hebrews is placed upon Christ being at the right hand of the Father. And this is very purposeful. Not only is it a reality, but to, to proclaim that reality is to help assure those who have been deprived from what they once experienced, whether that was the temple services in Jerusalem. They have the reality and the substance of those things that were merely copies and shadows. Unlike the Levitical high priest, the author wants them to hear this they are earthbound, and sooner or later they, they were removed because of death, of old age. But Christ's high priest, his high priesthood is forever, for eternity in heaven, where he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. That is a beautiful expression, and it's one that we should be familiar with because it's very similar to what was introduced to us in the very first chapter of Hebrews. If you have forgotten, it has been many moons since we've been there. Listen again to the way the author describes our exalted king. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The exalted and glorified son is at the right hand of the father. For some of us, we, that's kind of lost on us. We, we hear the expression, it sounds pretty good and grand, but it really is, it is proclaiming truth and helping us understand 
who Christ is, what he has accomplished, and what he is doing today. Seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, this is his position of privilege and authority. It is significant, this simple declaration, because it is a sign of the finality of his work on Calvary's cross. There wasn't just the potential for a people to be redeemed and saved by the blood of the Lamb. There was a people purchased by Christ on Calvary's cross. So thinking about how this relates to the high priest, that maybe these Hebrew Christians were being tempted to go back towards. They're watching them function in the temple. They remember what they represent, and they're, they're maybe drawn to go back. Every high priest in the Old Testament stood, that's important, stood daily at his service. There was no chair available for them to sit down upon. They were to stand because their work was continuous. They made the same sacrifices repeatedly, which ultimately could never take away sins permanently. But when Christ, our great high priest, offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So that sacrificial work that needed to be continually done by the Levitical priests, the author, inspired by the, spirits, inspired by the Spirit of God, is pointing to Christ and saying, Oh, brothers and sisters, he is so much better. He has completed fully and finally the sacrifice needed for our sins to be forgiven fully and finally. He is our great high priest. Christ at the right hand of God also signifies the eternal certainty of his reward, of his accomplishment. It is not possible that he should be robbed of the purchase of his blood. Christ will have what he bought with his sacrifice. He shall never be a defeated or disappointed savior. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. The New Testament makes much of Jesus's ascension to heaven and session at God's right hand. We need to be encouraged to think hard on this, meditate upon these glorious truths. To have Jesus as our high priest is great. To think about the, the, the un, kind of unpacking and, and flow of what the author of Hebrews has been pointing at, he is our high priest, and we have him not only as what a high priest would look like as a Levitical high priest, but one after the order of Melchizedek. And if you remember, we looked at Psalm 110, and in Psalm 110, we have this, this coming together of both a, a king and a priest who would one day come and rule and care for the people of God. And so we have a great high priest king who not only saves us from our sin, but also from all of his and our enemies. He is a high priest king who rules and reigns. His reign as the high priest king is most glorious. He's at the right hand of the Father and he reigns over all governments. 
He reigns over the devil and all of his works and all of his ways. He reigns over the weather. He reigns over over heart attacks and dementia and cancer and Lyme disease. He reigns over pregnancies and adoptions. He reigns over all things. Our picture of the Levitical priesthood should only stay in a copy and a shadow and see its great fulfillment in this great high priest king who right now is seated at the right hand of the Father. What a glorious king and priest we have. I want to, I've, I've quoted this passage from 1 Peter before. When we talk about the invisible being more substantial than the visible, the invisible, the Apostle Peter helps us. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." We so often are even tempted to despair because we get so focused on the visible. And one of the many reasons why God has ordained us, his people, to gather weekly on the Lord's Day is to sit under the word, to proclaim the word in song, and be reminded of the invisible. We need that. We are described many, many times in the New Testament as sheep. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to be around sheep as of late, but they are not the smartest tools in the shed. They are just not, they, they are just in need of a shepherd. And it's beautiful how the Bible paints this picture and then helps us see we are the sheep in need of help every minute of every day. One to remind us, to point us back to the glories of who we are in Christ, what he has accomplished on our behalf. And so as we gather and as we sit, we weekly need to be reminded of the invisible. And by God's grace, he has given us his word that clearly proclaims our Lord's excellencies, the hope that we have in him, the blueprint for this life, what is to come for those who trust in Christ, all of that is made real and alive as we gather together as the local church and hear the word proclaimed, sing the words of the Lord together corporately, partake of the sacraments. We sing, we see, we taste, we touch, we interact. We need this as sheep being prodded and reminded of who our great high priest king really is. Verse 2 says, A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 2 introduces an idea that becomes quite important as this letter continues in chapters 9 and 10, namely that Christ's priestly ministry occurs in the true tabernacle, tabernacle of God in heaven. It is not that the old covenant tabernacle and temple were somehow like false means of approaching the Lord. No, they were set up by God for his people. Rather, we see in our passage that they are but copies and shadows 
of the real thing that depend on the real thing for their effectiveness, always pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And once the high priest enters the real eternal tabernacle, there is no reason to abandon him that which is better and return back to the old. It should also be pointed out that the incarnate Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, is described in the New Testament as as the true tabernacle and the minister of the tabernacle. And so in, in some sense, it can be a little confusing. There is the eternal um, reality of the, the copies and shadows that were given to the people in how they constructed the tabernacle and the temple to point to this reality. And also when we hear passages from the New Testament, we understand that, that Christ Jesus the Lord is the ultimate fulfillment of what the tabernacle and the temple were to represent. So to just kind of give you a little bit of that taste, John Owen makes this application. It was an institution of God that the people in all of their distresses should look unto and make their supplications towards the tabernacle, towards the temple. Now, when we think about Christ being the fulfillment And it is unto the Lord Christ alone, who is both the true tabernacle and the minister thereof, that we, his people, now are to look solely and wholly as as we experience spiritual distresses. So the people of Israel were called to point their gaze and attention as they encountered the hardships and the difficulties of this life towards the tabernacle. And that was but a shadow of what we now as the people of God, when we experience spiritual distress, point our attention and gaze on. And it is solely fixed on Christ and Christ alone, not other things. It is him and him alone. So to hear a little bit of this from the New Testament. So God sanctified Israel's temple as a place for him to dwell. We see that in the Old So Christ, according to Colossians 2.9, we read, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So where in in the, the tabernacle the Lord's presence dwelt, we look to Christ and see the full manifestation. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in the Son. God's glory was most clearly manifested in the tabernacle of old. Then we hear from John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In the tabernacle, sacrifices and incense were offered to God and all the holy services were performed of old. So Christ And his body offered up his own sacrifice, prayers, and all the holy services for his people. The tabernacle was the place where people, the people of God, brought their offerings. So now we, in the new covenant, we bring our offerings unto Christ, our King and our Lord. The old order was designed to teach and to point forward that the way of atonement was by way of sacrifice and substitution 
and to produce in the people of God an anticipation and a hope for in the fullness of time, God would send the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute for the removal of all of his people's sins. I hope that you're not feeling like we're just kind of beating a dead horse. There was such a temptation, and there is even now for some to think that there's more to go back. If we go back, we'll experience a more full or robust walk with God. And they are, they are taking away from Christ's work by thinking that objects or things or places can somehow provide a more robust Christianity. It is all of Christ. He is better, and the temptation was even more so in the first century. But we also find those same temptations to look elsewhere, to supplement, to think that that's going to help aid our experience of God. When our treasure is in Christ and Christ alone. Verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer, offer gifts and sacrifices, Thus, it is necessary for this priest, Christ, also to have something to offer. And I, I've been reflecting on this verse. And for those in Christ, I think it's good for us to think about, okay, we can read all the, the gifts and offerings of the Levitical priesthood and to think about all the things that they offered, gifts and sacrifices, and then just to stop and to ask the question, does our great high priest have something to offer? What an amazing offering gift that the Lord Jesus brings to the table. All of the copies and shadows were just to anticipate this great high priest who would lay down his life as that offering. So in, in verse 3, we are reminded that if Christ were to be a true priest, he must have something to offer, something to sacrifice. And John Calvin is helpful in his discussion on the nature of Christ's sacrifice. He reminds us that whatever of an earthly kind appears at first sight to be in Christ, it is to be viewed spiritually by the eye of faith. What I think he means by that is Christ did suffer in an earthly physical manner for our sin. Most definitely, we look to Calvary's cross, we read about the pain and physical suffering that he endured in his dying for us. But the most intense suffering he felt was the suffering of an invisible and spiritual nature that he endured when he was forsaken by the Father. So if you have thought long and hard about the physical sacrifice of Christ, that is good and right. But there is even more there. There is a, a, an invisible spiritual nature to the reality of how, how costly the death of the eternal Son of God truly was. He endured being forsaken and abandoned by the Father. This was Christ's most intense agony. 
Hear from Mark chapter 15. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was physical pain and anguish, but the abandonment by the Father towards the Son, as he bore the wrath that we all deserve, that was the invisible spiritual agony that he endured. And though Christ was certainly forsaken in an earthly bodily sense, the abandonment of his soul and his suffering in the unseen places was so much greater. When we think about what he has to offer, what he endured, the sacrifice, grace really becomes sweet when you understand the costs of that grace. What was purchased in order to provide this unmerited favor to sinners like us before a holy and right God. Christ's work is superior than the Levitical priesthood on multiple fronts because it occurs both on earth and in the heavenly tabernacle. The high priest of old did their work only in the shadows, the copy of the heavenly place that Moses was commanded to build. However, Christ does his priestly work not in shadowy copy, but in the heavenly reality. So here's a little application to think about. Many of us in this life are going through or have gone through times in our lives where we have experienced extremely difficult experiences that in those moments, maybe even now, you have felt abandoned, alone. But none of us have ever been abandoned like Christ was on the cross. And please hear this offering that our great high priest has made. And because of Christ's offering, the Father will never abandon us. Because of his offering, does he have anything to bring? Because of his abandonment, we have this promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So whatever you have felt, please let your heart and mind be anchored in the invisible, the reality that you will never be forsaken, you will never be abandoned because of what Christ has experienced on your behalf. Another glorious aspect of this offer that he has to make is the the one-time nature. This is huge as we read through the letter to the Hebrews. The high priest continually had to offer again and again sacrifices and gifts over and over and over. That was to help understand that there is only one who could make that once and for all sacrifice, that one-time nature of his offering. Please hear this. Everything that defiles or makes us unclean before an infinitely holy God, Christ has overcome and removed by this one-time offering. By the shedding of his blood, the barrier that our sin has created between us and God has been removed by the Son. If you have repented and believed in him and received him by faith, 
then you need to hear what he proclaimed on the cross. It is finished. It's over in the best way possible. All of your sin, past, present, and future, have been forgiven by the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That is what he has to offer. Let's let the writer of Hebrews ground this truth. We saw it in chapter 7. I want you to hear it from chapter 7. I want, to he- I want you to hear it from chapter 10. In chapter 7, we hear this. He, Christ, has no need, in verse 27, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And then Hebrews 10, 12 But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, verses 4 and 5 of our passage. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So just real quick, this was something we touched on before, but verse four is basically helping us understand why it is that if Christ were on earth during this time that the recipients of this letter received it and there are still the activity of the Levitical priest happening, why he would be no priest at all? Well, according to the law, those who were priests for God's people had to be from the line of Aaron, from the tribe of Levi. That was the only way, according to the law, that you could serve as a priest. And again, this is what paints and brings these glorious truths together that he is both king and priest After the order of Melchizedek, we know that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. And so God was doing something different in this great high priest to come. And so, that being verse 4, in verse 5, there is this, this careful reading of Exodus revealing a pattern for how the tabernacle, the tent, was to be constructed. It was given to Moses by God. This pattern helps us see that the earthly tabernacle was modeled after something else. It wasn't just that God told Moses to go build something in his own image, what he thought would be good. No, God gave him a blueprint, exactly what it was to look like to mirror or reflect, replicate what's actually happening in reality in the heavenly places. So God commanded the building of the tabernacle in which he would dwell among his people and Moses was to build it exactly as the Lord prescribed. By using the language of shadows and copies, the author of Hebrews shows us that truly these are blueprints to be followed, that they, they reflect a deeper reality. And so from the beginning, it was always a pointer looking forward to what was to come. So you can read 
and your own devotions, your own study, Exodus 25 and 26, to see this blueprint given to Moses in exact details. The author is is driving home this, this point. The reality has come in Christ, and now those shadows, those copies, are passing away. So brothers and sisters, look to Christ. Now, just a, a little bit of a, an excursus here. I think it's important for us to, to, to hear from our passage this morning that God has given a blueprint to follow. There's great application here in thinking about not being man-centered and doing things our own way, but realizing that God actually has given us direction, blueprint for this life. Just as Moses was required to obey and follow all that was given to him, that, that reality of us following God has not changed. We do live in a, in a world, in a place where, where it is very much self-focused, self-driven, self-autonomy. You kind of do things the way you think are right according to what you have experienced in this life. And that is, that is not the ways of the Lord. What we, have bege- what we have been given is what we are to follow, not to bring our own kind of ingenuity, uh, creativity to the, to the scene and think, well, I can actually probably make this better. What we, what we experience here on Sunday mornings, brothers and sisters, we want to encourage you to, to, to make note as you're like the Bereans reading scripture, what you see happen here on the Lord's Day is, is a pattern, is a blueprint that has been given to believers to follow. We, we, we don't have lights flashing and dramas being performed and things that we think will attract and feed the needs of the people. We are seeking from God's word what we are to be about. Now, some other implications from what we have heard this morning, specifically in the area of worship, because everything that happened with the tabernacle, the temple, all revolved around the theme of worshiping God, approaching God, giving to God, offering to God, making sacrifices to God. It was all about Him. So when we think about our life of worship and our high priest king, the Lord Jesus, the coming of the reality instead of the shadows, we need to understand just a little bit more about the fulfillment He fulfills and brings an end to the physical center of the Old Testament worship. That was but a copy and shadow. We have the substance. The tabernacle and the temple have passed away. He fulfills and brings to an end the Levitical priesthood. All that they were about were pointing to him as our great high priest. He fulfills and brings an end to the whole sacrificial system, the the ceremonial law. What this means, in essence, is that the entire worship life of the Old Testament or Old Covenant has found its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, and now we are part of the New Covenant. All who are united with him by faith experience a life of worship that I want to 
I want to encourage this morning is actually more comprehensive, more full than it ever was in the past. So if you're tempted by others to say, if you could just experience this kind of ceremony that we have read about in the old, oh, I'm telling you, it's going to bring to life, bring more of an experience of, of God's goodness and God's grace and a relationship with him. Brothers and sisters, that temptation needs to be put to death because you're adding to what Christ has already fulfilled. You're seeking to make more when he is enough. He is better. That is the the driving force behind all of this. He has fulfilled it. And our experience of worshiping the great high king has now been brought to fulfillment and it actually invades not just a location that we go to, but all of our life. In the new covenant, you need to hear this expression of worship is, is, is so much more than it once was in this sense. Listen to a few passages from Scripture. Romans 12, 1, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service or act of worship to God. That means all times and everywhere, our life now is all to be about worship. Dennis mentioned this passage, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. How we handle our money. The money that the Philippians sent to Paul, he says in in, in chapter 4, verse 18, was a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now, comprehensively, all of our life in the new covenant is experiencing worship in Christ. Also, it's interesting that there's not a focus so much of the temple in our passage this morning, but reference back to the tabernacle. And if you remember, the tabernacle was a mobile place of worship. It was a tent that was set up for a period of time, taken down. As the Lord moved, they would move, set it back up. And it represented God with them, but it also pointed forward in that God was not limited to one place or one particular location. And when we get to the new covenant, when we get to the Lord Jesus, we see likewise Christianity is that the substance of that shadow where Judaism was mainly kind of a come and see what or who this God is and what he's about. Christianity is mainly a go and tell religion. And to make that possible, the son of God, our great high priest, has not abolished worship but made it fundamentally a spiritual engagement with God in Christ, primarily rooted in local churches that can and must happen everywhere to the ends of the earth. There are many in our day that still anticipate the rebuilding of an earthly temple, just like the one from ancient Israel. This desire I want to submit to you this morning, actually neglects the fact that Christ is already ministering in the true heavenly temple. He is the fulfillment and minister thereof. And so, rather than rejoicing in the shadows, we rejoice that the shadows have passed into reality and that the work in the heavenly temple is accomplished by the Son of God 
on our behalf once and for all. He is so much better. Hear verse 6 again. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it, enact, it is enacted on better promises. Let us pray. Our Father, we are in need of your help this morning, the aid of the Holy Spirit to be a people that are reminded even now as we have looked at these first five verses of Hebrews 8 of, of the great treasure we have that is invisible to our eyes. Father, we are tempted even to despair or to other things when we are so focused on the visible. Lord, we need spiritual eyes to see, to behold the glory of our great high priest king, the Lord Jesus Christ. All that he has accomplished on our behalf, all that he has made possible through what he has offered. He was lifted up on the cross to die and he proclaimed, it is finished. This was his cry. And as we heard this morning, now he is exalted on high and we as his people, I pray our response as we sing would be hallelujah, what a Savior. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.